Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who's striving to play advanced level works one day, specifically Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road to this goal, ranging from the 18th century all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little more informed and appreciative of classical music. This is episode 25.3, the third and final episode in a series where we've learned about the life and the life's work of Norwegian composer Edvard Grieg. He was a touchstone for a nation striving to claim its own political and cultural identity. And his music and legacy lives on. Throughout this series of episodes, we've talked about several of the most influential figures in Grieg's life. Ule Boul in his childhood, Richard Nordrak as a young man, and his complicated, tumultuous relationship with his wife, Nina Hagrup. An account of Grieg's life would not be complete, however, without mentioning a young musical prodigy that he met at the end of his life, Percy Granger. Percy was an eccentric Australian youth, described by his own mother as a rarity, to put it mildly. He would have described himself as a composer, self-ranking his talents above Mozart and Tchaikovsky, but his work has largely been forgotten. He found greater success during his lifetime as a performer, well-regarded by many, including Grieg himself who adored his playing and his interpretations. Due to a philandering father, Percy's mother moved her son and herself to London, where she was determined to launch her son's musical career. She was the ultimate stage mom, controlling every facet of her teenage son's life. He didn't seem to mind, however, and it even sparked rumors of an incestuous relationship between them. Percy ended up playing recitals at the homes of the London elite, eventually attracting the attention of a much older patron, socialite Lilith Lowry. Granger described Mrs. Lowry as somewhat gaunt, big-boned face, teeth showing, thinning lips, greenish eyes, dark hair, a stunning body shape, with high-colored views of sex, love, money, and art. Mrs. Lowry liked her lovers young, and she agreed to introduce Percy into her impressive social circle in exchange for sexual favors. Percy's mother approved of this quid pro quo relationship. Percy's uh, social networking, to euphemize the situation, allowed him access to perform within the finest London music halls. Although he was born Australian, Young Granger was obsessed with Nordic culture. And who was one of the figureheads circling around the center of Nordic culture at the time? Why, Edvard Grieg. So he elected to learn and play Grieg's piano concerto during one of his first London concerts.
Grieg caught wind of this up-and-coming pianist in London, and the two of them corresponded, eventually arranging to meet in person. Although Granger was recovering from a bout of chickenpox, he did not want to pass up the opportunity to meet Grieg while he was in London. They had dinner at the home of a London aristocrat, where Percy played Grieg's Norwegian peasant dances for the aging composer. Grieg was so impressed by the young man that he invited young Percy to another dinner that week, stating, I have written Norwegian peasant dances that no one in my country can play, and here comes this Australian who plays them as they ought to be played. He's a genius that we Scandinavians cannot do other than love. Percy ended up turning pages at Grieg's final concert in 1907. There was a current of strong admiration flowing both ways in this May-December mentorship. No one described it better than Grieg himself. It's a dangerous thing to be strongly admired, but when one admires in return, as I do in this case, that evens it out. I have not met anyone who understands me as he does. After that final concert, Grieg was exhausted and checked himself into a hospital for treatment. He shortly returned home to Norway, feeling mentally and physically drained and unable to work. His health was failing him, but he thought it was temporary. Percy came to visit him in his hometown, staying at the Grieg household for 10 days in the summer of 1907. The two spent much of that time at the piano, discussing Grieg's life's work, and planning a concert where Percy would perform Grieg's concerto. When time is in short supply, however, it is never enough. In his last letter to Percy, Grieg wrote, I wanted so much to get to know you better, both as an artist and as a person, for I had the feeling that we would understand each other. And that is what happened. You've become a dear young friend to me, one who has enriched my life's evening. Two weeks later, Grieg was admitted to the hospital for insomnia and breathlessness. He still held hope close to his chest, claiming that his upcoming concerts would give him strength. Several days later, however, he suffered heart failure and passed away at the age of 64. By his own request, Grieg's ashes were placed in a grotto on a cliff overlooking his hometown. They remain there to this day. Percy ended up playing that concert that they had planned, in memory of his friend and mentor. But that was only the beginning for Percy Granger. Percy regularly played and promoted Grieg's work throughout his career, up until his final performance of Grieg's concerto in Minnesota in 1960. He is one of the biggest reasons why we're still even talking about Grieg in 2023, much to Grieg's own surprise. I'll leave this talk on Grieg's life with words from the man himself. I make no pretensions of being in the class with Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. Their works are eternal, while I wrote for my day and my generation. No doubt my music will be forgotten a hundred years from now. However, I feel that I have not wasted my time in writing music that has delighted millions of people in all enlightened countries. Oh, Greek, 
how wrong and how right you were. So let's talk about one of these pieces that is over 100 years old that we're still talking about. We return once again to Grieg's collection of lyric pieces. A collection of short piano pieces, mostly inspired by Norwegian folk melodies. But in this episode, we're going to focus on one of the rare lyric pieces that was not inspired by Norway, but instead inspired by one of Grieg's trips abroad, to Italy. This is one of the more popular selections from the entire collection, and one of my favorites as well. It's a cousin to Claire de Lune, as it also shares a similar theme of night music. The piece this week is Grieg's Noturno, which is the Italian word for nocturne, a melancholic melody intended to convey a nighttime vibe. Grieg's Noturno definitely fits that bill, and it opens with a dreamy, sleepy melody. Even though this piece is inspired by a musical style a bit foreign to Grieg, he still manages to inject his own flavor into it. As we learned in the last episode, Grieg liked to incorporate sounds from nature into his work, especially bird calls. And he does that here in this piece as well. And since this is a nocturne, it's probably a safe assumption that there's a nightingale present on this Italian evening. I mean, it surely doesn't sound like an owl. And that completely exhausts my knowledge of nocturnal birds. <laughs> but anyway, after we hear the birds sing, we build the momentum of the piece with a section of sweeping arpeggios that explodes into the climax at about the halfway point. And after that climax, where do we go from there? Well, we return to a similar section to the beginning, repeating that laid-back, dreamy melody. But instead of building up again to a climax, the piece begins to taper off. We hear the bird return one more time. And the piece softly fades away 
into the night. This is Noturno, from Grieg's Lyric Pieces, Volume 5, Opus 54, Number 4.
Well, there's another four examples from the collection of 66 pieces from Edvard Grieg's Lyric Pieces. A shining amalgamation of Norwegian influence and culture. There are still some great ones in the set, including my personal favorite, Vanished Days. Maybe I'll get to that one someday. Speaking of the future of this podcast, I've started planning out the final roadmap to the Rhapsody in Blue finale. We just finished series 25, and my plan is for the grand Gershwin finale to be series 30. We'll discuss what happens after that at a later date. I do plan on keeping the podcast alive in some form or another, but for now, let's focus on the road to 30. Up next is series 26, a series where we're going to celebrate the underdog. I'm planning on highlighting the work of some composers that often get overshadowed by one of their more famous family members. But their work is often just as good, maybe even better. We'll talk more about that next time. Talk to you then. You can find the standalone recording of the piece we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all the tracks that are on this podcast and more. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating or reviewing. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode, and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. Thank you, as always, for your time and your ears. And remember, the piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind.